Um, thanks so much for sitting. If you've got your Bibles, um, if you can open them to John 15, uh, 18 through to 16, um, verse 4 is where we're going to be reading. John 15, 18. Um, this morning's message, um, if you're not, or if you're new with us for the first time, you might not be aware we're in a series going through the book of John. And this, this week we're, we're up to a passage that deals with persecution. So we're looking at the topic of persecution. And uh, to sort of take you there, I thought I'd start off by sharing a, uh, a story from Voice of the Martyrs uh, about some Christians who've been persecuted in Indonesia. Um, it's actually a personal story for me. I've met these guys before. I lived uh, in this part of Indonesia for two years. And um, so I thought we'd start off by reading from this um, before I then uh, read the passage and pray. Reba and Roy are Christian evangelists in Aceh a strict Muslim area of Indonesia. For the past few years, they've been witnessing to Muslims through missions providing local people with assistance for farming and cattle breeding. This practical service has enabled them to develop friendships, and they have seen five Muslims become followers of Christ. In Indonesia, Christians are permitted to own Bibles, but are not allowed to evangelize or convert Muslims to Christianity. In order to win one Muslim woman to Christ, Reba hand-wrote the Gospel of John onto scraps of paper so she could smuggle them page by page to the woman for her to read as she witnessed to her at the beach. In May 2012, Reba and Roy felt the call of God to evangelize in Nahern village. Reba said she had three dreams where Jesus spoke to her as the good shepherd of Psalm 23, and this gave her confidence to go to this village. Reba and Roy stayed with a Muslim woman, Maria, who had many questions about Christianity. On May 29, Roy felt compelled to go up a mountain and pray. I sensed something was coming, but I didn't know what it was. It was like the Lord was preparing me to completely trust in him, Roy said. I was at peace and said, I will trust you, Lord, no matter what happens. The next day, Roy was standing outside Maria's house when a young man started a conversation with him. Roy felt uneasy and sensed the man may have an ulterior motive for detaining him. Before he could excuse himself and leave, he saw a mob advancing towards him. This young man hit me solidly in the face without warning, and the mob rushed me and started beating me, Roy said. During the beating, I began to feel the strength of the Lord as I prayed, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. People in the mob cried out, Allahu Akbar, Allah is great. And as Reba was being pushed and jostled by the mob, she heard some people shout, You came to this area dressed in a headscarf, but we know you have another mission. What are you doing here? You can't buy Islam with your money. I immediately prayed to the Lord to give strength as this was developing into a serious situation. I was also thinking of the Lord Jesus being beaten and he had suffered for me, Reba said. The people brought me to the house of the village chief where I was questioned. They mocked and berated us. In response, we told them what we know about Jesus and why we believe in him. But every time we said something, they slapped and kicked us. It was a miracle that we had the strength to endure it all. The mob crammed into the official's office and pressed so hard against the door that the hinges broke. They shouted accusations and beat Reba and Roy while the village chief questioned them. Someone brought a backpack which had been found under the seat of Reba's motorcycle. Inside was a Bible, Christian tracts, a water bottle and a list of new believers. Reba and Roy were accused of coercing a Muslim woman named Miriam to join their church. 
One person claimed the water bottle was intended to be used for baptism. The evangelists told the chief, the village chief, they had been discussing Christianity with the woman's consent. Who sent you to her? Jesus sent us, they replied. Their boldness enraged the mob. Fearing a riot, the village chief called the police. Four policemen arrived at the village official's house, collected all the evidence and took Reba and Roy to the local police station. The angry mob followed them and stood outside protesting. News of the incident spread and journalists arrived to interview people about what had happened. On the way there, the Lord opened the door for us to share our faith, Reba said. Every step and every mile it seemed that opportunities to talk about Jesus kept coming to us. So the police reporters and everyone in the prison heard about him. Reba and Roy were held at the local police station for three hours and then taken in separate vehicles to a police station in Arche's capital city where they were placed in a cell and interrogated by two officers for several hours. The officers asked them questions like, why were you sharing about Jesus? Because Jesus is for all people and he wants everyone to know about him, Reba replied. Haven't you read the Quran? Yes, I have, but it's not very deep compared to the Bible. Roy and Reba were questioned regarding the mob's accusations and detained overnight on the pretext of being witnesses to the event. On the 1st of June, the authorities charged Roy and Reba with blasphemy and abusing Islam, a serious offence, and decided to hold them until further investigations were made. News of their situation reached various Christian organisations who mobilised the church to pray for them. One of the policemen was a believer from the Batak tribe, the same tribe as Reba, and he was able to obtain permission for Roy and Reba to have their Bibles in their cell. When their case was presented before the court, the evidence against Roy and Reba was insufficient to convict them, so they were released on the 30th of July 2012 and told to leave the area. Reba wrote a letter of thanks to the Christian community to express her thanks for the support she and Roy received. First, I want to thank Jesus, my Lord, All the things that have happened in my life so far, including my being in jail, are according to his will. One time I felt dismayed. I told God it was very difficult for me and I even even thought of giving up sharing my faith. But the Lord encouraged me with the words from Matthew 10.24, If I, your master, was persecuted, you will face the same thing too. My heart overflowed with thanksgiving. I asked the Lord to grant me wisdom and to speak so that whenever people asked me, I could share the gospel with confidence. In the prison cell, I felt God's amazing love. So thanks for your prayers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not worried anymore. Jesus is my good shepherd. I lack nothing. My brothers and sisters, please keep praying for us. Well, I think we hear a story like this and we're really moved by it. Like It cuts you right to the heart, doesn't it, to hear people in Christ suffering terrible persecution. But... In the same breath, it's, it's like it's a long way away. It's on the other side, of the other side of the world and it feels so distant and removed from us. Well, I think God wants to make for us this morning by his word, persecution personal. I think he wants to take something from being right out there that's far and different and bring it right home to us. So why don't you open your Bibles with, um, with me to John 15 and I'll read from verse 18. And then we'll pray. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but 
because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when the person who kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Lord, Father, We want to thank you for your word. Powerful word. Word about a light that came down into heaven. Word about a precious saviour, our Lord Jesus, who came, dwelt and died for us. Lord, uh, times we find it hard to understand, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask this morning by your spirit, you would speak clearly to us, Lord. You would speak clearly to us, Lord, that we might see that precious Saviour, that light. And not just see and not just understand, but be changed. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I've titled this message, um, When Persecution Comes. Because I think in life there's, there's many things that are certain, right? We talk about... You know, death is certain and taxes are certain. But I think for the Christian, the Bible clearly says that one thing that's certain is persecution. Uh, it, Jesus himself says it in John fifteen twenty. He says, if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. And I've got three main points this morning. Um, three quick points. The, the, the first point is the cause of persecution. The second point is the call to face persecution. And the third point is the strength to face persecution. And there's one thing that I really want to communicate to you guys this morning. I guess one thing that's a hope for this message. Normally we spend ages of time in preaching sort of trying to think of what that point will be. But this passage is easy in the sense that Jesus gives it straight to us. And that's in chapter 16.1. He says, I'm saying these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
And so the whole point of this message is to prepare you for when persecution comes. So let's start with point one, the cause of persecution. I've got a, uh, one of my favorite films, a film that I love. It's a bit of a cult classic these days. Um, it's called Zombieland. I don't know if anyone's watched it before. It's, a, it's pretty much just about a zombie apocalypse. And uh, I love a good zombie apocalypse. And uh, basically what happens is there's this geeky guy um, who kind of misses the whole zombie apocalypse because he's too busy, you know, playing computer games inside and doesn't really have any friends. And I think I like the film because I kind of identify with him a little bit in his social awkwardness and I feel like there's a bit of me in there. And anyway, um, him and a whole bunch of guys basically get together and they're traveling around trying to sort of find purpose and escape from the zombie apocalypse. And there's this final great scene in Zombieland. It's just such a, a brilliant scene. And basically what happens is is there's this girl that's uh, with them and her younger sister. And, and this girl just basically has had enough. And so she takes her younger sister to, to this basically fun land um, in California. And they drive up to this fun land. It's all closed down, closed down and the lights are off because of the zombie apocalypse, right? And um, so she has this great, I'm just going to treat my, my little sister, my baby sister. And so she flicks on the big switch and the whole theme park comes to life. And they're you know, on this big ride going up and down. But what they don't know is that the zombies are attracted to the light. And so every zombie from every part of the city is like converging on this light because this is just bright light, smack bang in the middle of the city. And it's the, it's the climax of the film. And I think it's a beautiful picture because it's a picture of not only an awesome climax of the film, but of, of something of what's going on in John. You have this world in darkness and death rules and people don't know God. And this light comes down into the world. Jesus, the word. So if you have your Bibles there, let's get started. Uh, John 15, and I want to read from verse 18. John 15, 18. If the world, world, the word is cosmos. It's like cosmology, cosmic, you know, that sort of word that we use, cosmos. And in John, um, he's got a few different uses for cosmos, but the use here and the majority of the time, the world is not just the physical place, it, it's everything that's opposed to God. Everything that is in rebellion against God. And, and for me, that just gives a whole new meaning to John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world. For God so loved everything, all kings and rulers and people in opposition to him that he gave his only son. Merciful God. Well, let's keep, keep reading on. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hates. Hates. Not just, not just dislikes. Hatred. Absolute hatred. You know that feeling just you get inside where you're just so angry, you're so mad, you're just riled up. Hatred. Pure hatred. And, and Jesus says, if the world hates you, know this, it hated me before it hated you. I think for the disciples, this would have been a surprise. I mean, they know Jesus is unpopular. In chapter, chapter 11, when uh, Jesus is going to, to up to, towards Jerusalem to, 
to see Lazarus, um, they know he's unpopular and there's people out to get him. But I don't think they had any idea about what was coming in chapter 18 and 19 where they're going to put him to death on that cross for us. And Jesus says, if they hated you, know that they hated me first. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says the world loves its own. The world loves all that is in opposition to God. The world loves people that have rejected God. The world loves its own. But you, I chose you out of the world. You're not of the world. And so, by definition, the world hates you. At this strong language, Jesus hates you. The world hates you. It's powerful language, Jesus. Well, let's, let's, let's keep on reading. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. I think Jesus is saying here, like master, like servant. I was thinking this week about Saddam Hussein and when he fell, when the nation of Iraq during the Iraq war was captured and You just remember how the people of Iraq hated Saddam Hussein so much. They were beating his statue with their shoes. They hated him that much. Well, how then did the people of Iraq feel about Saddam Hussein's servant, Ibrahim Al-Takriti, the head of the intelligence service? I can tell you, they hated him as well. And Jesus is saying, like master, like servant, if they hate me, then they'll hate you. But, But more than that, he says, if they persecute me, then they will persecute you as well. Persecute, the word in Scripture, it means like to pursue, to chase after. And in some contexts, it's a positive thing. In First Peter, Peter's first letter, he's talking about pursuing righteousness, and he uses the same word. But in this context, persecution is the outflow of hatred. Persecution means a hatred so much that it overflows into pursuit. I hate you so much and everything you stand for that I am going to chase you down. I'm going to single you out and make your life difficult because of the hatred that I have for you. That's persecution, the overflow of hatred. Well, let's keep reading. But all these things, verse 21 they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Because they do not know him who sent me. I think when we think about knowing, uh, for us, it's like knowing someone, it's like having knowledge about them, having information about them. Like, you know, I know him or, or it's that, that awkward situation where someone comes up to you and says, oh, hey, Brendan, and you're thinking, ah, oh, where do I know you from? I've 
completely forgotten your name, you know. Um, we normally think about not knowing, we think about not having information about someone, not sort of you know, knowing stuff about them, but that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Not knowing God in Scripture is something completely different. Not knowing God is about relational destruction. It's about complete relational destruction. You know, in Scripture, there was a time when, when people knew God, when God dwelt with men, when there was this intimate relationship between God and between people. He walked with them shortly after he created man in the Garden of Evil, walked alongside them. Men knew God in an intimate and personal way. But then man, at the end of chapter 3, he defies God and he chooses different knowledge. He chooses the knowledge of good and evil by eating from the fruit of the tree when he was forbidden to do so, when he knew that death would come as a result. And so there's this death and destruction that reigns as people everywhere don't know God. I mean, immediately, it seems, after man chooses to reject God, Cain, in cold blood, because of jealousy, murders his brother. He murders his brother and God says to him, your brother's blood cries out from the earth. What have you done? And it's just a picture of what man has become apart from God. The world and mankind in it are all in darkness. No one knows God. Everyone has forsaken God. But then God begins this rescue project. In in John chapter 1, in in verse 9, it talks about how the light through whom everything was made comes down into earth. Jesus, the man, God, God become man who through whom everything that was was created comes down into earth. The light descends into the world of darkness. But the world doesn't even know the light. The world doesn't even recognize the light. The God they once knew, the God who once walked with man, they don't know him anymore. The point is that light has come into a world of darkness, a world that doesn't know God. And I think this is the primary cause of persecution. It's light shining in a world that doesn't know God. I want you to flick a few chapters back to John chapter 3. And I just want to read with, uh, get you to read with me just a couple of verses from John chapter 3. Verse 19. John writes, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone, hear this, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Why? And does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. Everyone hates the light and does not come to it. Lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, it's a picture of people doing all these wicked things under the cover of darkness and the light coming down, exposing them. And as a result, hatred. You know, it reminds me of um, Mike Pasolich and I, we have this mutual bond um, over a show called Cops. Um, Mike's very passionate about cops. I'm also passionate about cops. And on the, on the program Cops, which is a show that kind of follows around policemen in, in the United States as they kind of pretty much beat up on people. Um, but criminals, criminals. Um, and they have this saying that they say, they say, light them up, 
uh, what it means is to light them up is when they light up their lights and shine their headbeams right on a, a car or, or a bad guy that they're just about to bust. And it's that picture of just the headlights going boom on this criminal and suddenly he's there, you know, with the drugs in his hand and just staring or, or, or then suddenly he'll just run and take off. Um, but no one, when those headlights come on, is rejoicing. No one's pleased that, you know, NYPD has arrived or uh, Nevada State Police has arrived. No, they're not pleased at all. They're, they either pelt out of there or they're furious as they try to defend themselves. Um, the light comes in and it just exposes. You know, I think of, you know, Gollum in the Lord of the Rings with his precious. And there's that sting that comes in, the light that comes in. He's like, ah, ah. And, and that's what it is, isn't it? Like, the, no, no, my precious. It's, it's that picture of the light just exposing, you know, someone in wickedness, a world in wickedness, and just being repelled by that, just offended by that, hatred flowing out of that. But the thing is that this light, it now dwells in us. In, in John 7, 7, uh, Jesus is going to, or he's said he's not going to go up to the, the festival of the, the booths, but he sends his disciples on ahead. And his disciples say, say, are worried about people hating them. And Jesus says to them, look, the world can't hate you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about its works. Its works are evil. And it's, 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 that, it's that picture of zombie land, isn't it? That that powerful light in the middle of a world of darkness and it's jesus he's there with his disciples shining so bright and all the world has its focus on jesus and jesus says no i'm here the world can't hate you because i'm here i'm the one that's there with the light exposing all the all the wickedness of the world but what happens from there is jesus dies on a cross he ascends and then the Spirit comes and unites us to Christ so that the light now dwells within us. It's just imagine that you're up on a, a lookout, looking out over the whole of this city. And you can, it's earth hour and there's just absolute darkness because everyone's turned off their lights like they should, right? And um, we don't. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. Um, and it's just complete darkness. But then the hour comes to an end and the lights start to come on and you just see a light flick up there and another one and another one and another one, and another one, and another one. And there's all of this sea of tiny little lights in a world of darkness. And that's what the picture is now, according to Scripture. You know, Jesus says in 21 verse 3, he says, these things they will do to you on account of my name. Well, how does the light shine in us? I think there's two primary ways um, I think the first thing is it, it, it shines out of us through gospel proclamation. You know, the gospel, it's, it's an offensive message. The gospel, the message of the gospel is saying, you're in a desperate situation. The way you're living is wrong. You're, you're in rebellion against the God of the universe. You need to repent and you need to believe and trust in him and nothing else. His finished work on the cross for your salvation. That's the gospel. That, and that is... That is offensive because in our world, the ultimate good, the ultimate good that you can do is just to, to follow what your desire is. To satisfy, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, you just do what you want and, and you do what you desire and that's what good is. And the gospel says, no, no, that's, that's wrong. That's not true. You're in, a, you're in a difficult situation. You're in a desperate situation. You need Christ. And that's offensive. 
The gospel says you need to you need to give that love that you have up for a greater love. You need to give it up for Christ. There is someone who demands your whole life, who calls you to account, the God of the universe. But secondly, I think it's it's like we just said, it's through the indwelling work of the Spirit that the light shines out of us. You know, Jesus says, You are not of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. You're not of this world. Every man is destined to be born, born of the flesh, but he must be born again. John, in chapter 3, new birth. Every man needs to be born from above to enter the kingdom of God. Spiritual new birth. And spiritual new birth leads to spiritual new life and new deeds, leads to exposition, exposing the world for what it is, leads to hatred leads to hatred just by the way you live the world by definition is opposed to you now i was thinking um i was thinking this week you know just about some examples of this just that opposition i can remember um being in in arche and uh, a friend of mine uh, one of the guys on our team who's archinese guy who became a christian and uh and he just had to be so careful. I mean, for him, becoming a Christian meant giving up so much. It meant giving up absolutely everything. But it meant more than that. It meant risking his life for the sake of the gospel. And, and people in Arche are so, so opposed to, openly opposed to anything to do with the gospel that you, you have to be careful. You have to be cautious because people are just so explicitly hate Christians in that place. I mean, but even closer to home, I was, I was speaking just the other week with a brother, and um, this brother has a sister who's a lesbian, and uh, she just announced to their family that she's pregnant, she's expecting a child, and and this brother was just really wrestling with that, not knowing what to say in response to that, and because he wouldn't immediately burst forth in congratulations to his sister, because I guess there's even though he loves his sister, it's part of him that's mourning. His sister was just angry, furious, fuming, full of hatred towards him. The world hates the light. And you, my friends, have the light dwelling in you. Well, the obvious question is, why don't I experience this hatred? I mean, why does it feel like it's it's not... Real? I am I hated? Am I really hated by the world? It just, I, it just, I don't experience that. I don't feel that. It doesn't seem to be present in my life. Well, there's just a few things I wanted to say in regards to that. I think the first thing I wanted to say is neither did the disciples when Jesus spoke this. They didn't. Jesus, no, he's, he says, I'm preparing you for when these things happen. when persecution comes. The second thing I want to say is that faithful Christians will experience persecution, will experience that hatred that overflows into pursuit. I mean, they will experience it. Scripture says it may look different. It may look very different. And I I can't tell you how it will look for you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not responsible for telling you how it will look for you. All I'm responsible for doing is explaining to you what the Word says. And it says, Christians will experience persecution. Persecution will 
come. He says it twice in 19 and in, and in verse 20 again. It will come. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But the, the issue is that I think few people here, we, we, in fact, I can't imagine anyone here really having a life that's threatened for, for knowing and loving Jesus. I mean, I have a friend who I studied with. His name's Nima. He was Iranian. He became a Christian in Iran um, and joined the underground church there and they were trying to start other churches in Iran where if you are a Muslim, become a Christian, um, they'll kill you. And one day, one of the churches, the Iranian police turned up at the church. They arrested everyone, threw them in prison. Three of those people they've never seen before. Nima found out he was blacklisted by the police and he fled the country, fled to Albania before eventually making it to Turkey, before eventually coming to Australia. I mean, but that's just so different from the way we live here. I mean, we can, we can come up to people in the street and preach the gospel and they'll look at you like you're a little bit special. But, um, but, but just, you know, personal rejection, that's kind of where it's at. I mean, I mean, I think some of us, sometimes we experience that hatred, you know, the social isolation and that sense of that what you stand for, someone else just completely hates it. Completely. I mean, maybe they've been just injured by the church in the background. They're so mad with God. And so when they know you're a Christian, there's just that, ah, what are you doing? It's, I'm so mad with God. Or, or maybe it's the, the, the family context where, where you just feel a conviction from the Lord that, that you should be living differently. You want to give you know, everything that you have for the Lord. So you're sacrificially giving to the Lord's work, to the church. And, and your parents, who are thinking in terms of the world, are thinking, no, no, you need a house. You need uh, to send your kids to a good school. You need all those things. What are you doing? We hate what you're living for. It's just folly. It's, it's, it, it is, see, it's just foolishness. I mean, maybe, maybe you've experienced some of that. Maybe it's, it's a friend um, and you've sort of, in sharing the gospel or in being a Christian, they know that you disapprove of the relationship they're in or the way they're living. And so that friend, you know, has this animosity and, and hatred towards it. And maybe he's no longer a friend or is, as a result, we experience this kind of relational discord, but it's just, it's just, it's so different. I mean, I don't know if I've ever really experienced like, persecution in that sense things are different here but scripture says persecution will come we will experience persecution the third thing i want to say is just to say is that it does not follow that the more faithful the christian the more persecution they suffer no in fact you know, actually, sometimes I saw people being persecuted for doing really foolish things, silly things. You think, that probably was an error of judgment. No, that doesn't follow. If you say persecution and, and, and being faithful to God somehow go hand in hand, I think you're, you're saying more than what Scripture says. But I do think it is possible to try and hide that light in your life. I think there's two ways that you can do it. I think the first way is from hiding that your true self, hiding that, that inner hope, kind of like living a double life. You know, it's my story. I grew up in a Christian family, was going to school, deeply ashamed of my faith, deeply ashamed of, of what on a Sunday I would say I was. Didn't want anyone to know about it. So if you would have looked at my life and you looked at my actions, you probably just wouldn't have 
wouldn't have seen anything. You'd be surprised probably that I was a Christian. You know, we can, we can, we can hide that light. I mean, Jesus himself says in, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. The whole point of Jesus saying, let your light shine, is that it's possible not to do it. And so Jesus is saying, no, shine. Shine and let people see. I think we can hide ourselves. I think the second thing that we can do is, is not just hide our inner self, but just completely hide ourselves. I think we can surround ourselves in a, like a Christian ghetto where you think where there's just no one that thinks any differently. Everyone's got the light. It's just light party. It's like light disco or something. You know, it's just, there's light everywhere. And so, of course, we don't, we don't, we don't feel that hatred. Um, you know, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, he, he's admonished the people and said, look, you know, have nothing to do with these people that are doing sexual immorality and all these other things. But he says then in, in verse 10, but of course, I'm not talking about the sexually immoral of the world or anything like that. No, that's the whole reason why I came to Corinth in the first place is to reach them with the gospel. But we can live in a ghetto and surround ourselves with all these other lights and so we don't feel that, that hatred of the world. But the final thing I want to say is that if that light is truly in you, you won't be able to hide it for long. Oh, you won't. Because that is God at work in your life. He began that work and he will bring it to completion. Well, the cause of persecution is this cosmic battle between light of the world and a world in darkness, one that now exists in you. A second point, the calling to face persecution. I want to start reading uh, back a bit of the, the chapter that, that uh, Mark read last week from verse 9, just as a bit of giving context to, to our scripture. And I think it says some things that are really helpful for us to understand our passage. So why don't you turn back with me to, to uh, John 15, verse 9. We're going to read from verse 9. And Jesus says, in verse 9 he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Well, Jesus, how do I abide in, in, in your love? He goes on, he tells us, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments. Well, Jesus, what are your commandments? What do you, what do you want us to do? He tells us in verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, abide in my love. And you want to know how to do it? Love one another just as I've loved you. And you know what the greatest example of loving other people is? Well, it's what I'm going to do for you. Laying down your life. And Jesus goes on from, from, from that verse to verse 16. He says, he says in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I called you out. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and you should bear fruit and that fruit should abide. So Jesus says, says, abide in me. I want you to love one another. This is what abide in me means. Now go. Go. Go and bear fruit. The context of Jesus sending 
people out. The context of Jesus talking now in our passage about persecution is sending out his disciples to love people just as he's loved them. And Jesus goes on to say, this is what it's going to look like in the world as you go. In, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 3 in our passage, he says, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in my love. To abide in my love means to love other people just like I've loved you. It means laying down your life just like I'm going to do for you. Now go. And this is what's going to happen to you as you go. The world, it, it hates you by definition. It's going to pursue you. It's going to persecute you. Our passage is in the context of Jesus calling up his disciples and sending them out to go and love just as he's loved others. Calling them to follow his example. That's our passage. And I think that leads to just, I mean, it it seems so obvious, but I think I I just want to make it as a point at, the Christian, that we, Christians, we're called to be followers of Christ. We're called to follow Christ. But I think sometimes the, the Christ that we, that we envisage that we follow is something completely different. I mean, we, we, we picture in our mind, I mean, I do sometimes, the Christ of the Jesus of like bumper stickers and stained glass windows that's really serene or it's the, it's the prosperity Jesus who just wants to give you stuff. And he just wants to, you know, just wants to make you rich. Or it's the guru Jesus, just got all these wise things to say to you about how you should live your life. But that's just not the biblical picture. That's just not what the Bible teaches. The Jesus of Scripture, I mean, he was on the run from birth. I mean, the Jesus of Scripture, he, he, never, he never had a university degree. He never held any sort of office. The The Jesus of Scripture didn't even travel in his whole life more than 300 kilometers from where he was born. I mean, his ministry, during his ministry, he spent most of the time unemployed and homeless. I mean, he was briefly popular before being rejected by everyone who had ever said he loved them. I mean, he was pursued, he was arrested, he was mocked, he was beaten. He was nailed onto a cross. That's the Jesus who we follow. So I just wanted to spend some time just reading some passages of Scripture that talk about our Christ who calls us to follow Him. Just just to give us the sense of what the Bible says about what He's like. I mean, you know these passages, but I just want to dwell in them for a moment. Isaiah 52, 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have never heard, they they shall understand. Who has believed and who has heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, 
as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In Luke 9.23, Luke says, or Jesus says, he says, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him pick up a cross. Let him live as though he's walking towards the end of his life. Walking towards his death. Walking as I walked. And follow me, says our Lord. In Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In John chapter 12, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says, whoever loves his life, loses it and whoever hates his life in this world in this world that's opposed to god who hates everything about his life that is just resembles all that's in rebellion and anger against god will keep it for eternal life and if anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there will my servant be We are called by Jesus, a crucified Savior. Now risen and victorious, yes, but a man of sorrows who was despised and rejected. We're called by him to follow. And we're called by Christ to follow him, the persecuted Messiah, into a world that hates him. Well, point three, the strength to face persecution. I mean, you might be thinking, sitting there and thinking, Brendan, well, this is full-on overwhelming. I mean, I struggle just with like the, the little ones. Like just like when people go, oh, you're a bit of an idiot or even just give me a funny look and raise their eyebrows a bit. I mean, I struggle with that. And it seems so far less than full-on being like killed for what you believe. I mean, but how then can I, you know, how then can I face persecution if that's where I'm at? How, how can I get the strength to face it? I mean, how's this possible for me? It just seems too much. Well, I think there's, there's two sources of strength, two sources of hope that this passage speaks to. And the first one is that those who put their hope in Christ will never be put to shame. Why don't you read verse 22 and 25 of um, chapter 15, 22 to 25 with me. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But that is written in their law, that their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That it might be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause. You know, that passage of scripture occurs twice in the Old Testament. 
And both the Psalms, and both Psalms are cries for deliverance. Let me read you to them. Uh, first one is Psalm 35, 19. The psalmist writes, the Messiah David writes, he says, Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, let not those who wink the eye, who hate me without a cause. But then he ends the psalm, he says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. Let this happen. Let them say evermore, God is great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then Psalm 69, verse 4 David writes again, he says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Yet shortly after he says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor with me. In both of these Psalms, the Messiah says, I'm hated without a cause, but deliver me. Don't let me be put to shame. And this is fulfilled in Christ. He is the, the servant who was hated without a cause, who was persecuted, who was nailed onto a cross, but who was delivered by the Lord, who was raised three days later. And Christ says, that scripture fulfilled in me. And the same spirit that rose up Jesus three days later raises, will raise us up and dwells within us. He will deliver us. We will never be put to shame for hoping in him. You know, that, that same chapter from Matthew 5, and Jesus goes on to say, it's the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blessed are you when others revile, when they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, you're blessed. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You're blessed. Why? How can, how can, how can you be blessed? Because God sees you in the midst of persecution, in the midst of that hatred, and ultimately you'll be vindicated. On that last day, you'll say, come, my good and faithful servant. Those that hope in the Lord are never put to shame. I think strength for persecution is found in the knowledge that if you put your hope in Christ, he'll never abandon you. But also, secondly, I think the Spirit will ignite in you a love greater, a love greater than even the love you have for your own life. Why don't you read verse 26 and 27 with me? But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I'm sending the Spirit, Jesus says, and he's going to bear witness. And you also will bear witness, because that Spirit is in you. And the work of the Spirit is that it creates boldness for preaching the gospel. It's that floodlighting effect. You, know, you see him. You see him lit up, that king of kings, because of the Spirit. And you're just so in awe of him. You're just filled with a love for your Savior that, that you just, you just you can't be affected by that, but affected by that. And you're just overflowing with love. And so you just forget about all your fears and, and you just want to follow him. You just want to do everything for him. And then you see, you look around and you see your, your friends that don't know him, your friends that are just 
just abandoning Him and you're moved by your love for Him, you're moved by your love for your friends and you don't even think about it. You just start sharing with them the, the love that you have. You just can't hold it back. It's, it's what Mark talked about last week. It's the expulsive power of a greater love. Perfect love drives out fear. And the Spirit works in us to create that love. And the early church is just full of examples of that love at work, that Spirit working powerfully through. You, you think about you know, Peter and John, are just, they're uneducated men. They've never had an education. They didn't even go to kindergarten. And they're, I mean, can you imagine that? And they're preaching the gospel and people are like, whoa, where, where, who were these guys? How did this happen? It's, it's the, the expulsive power of a greater love. It's that, it's that power of the Spirit. Look, it, Acts chapter 10, Paul risked his death in, in preaching in, in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, it's James is killed and Peter, the wimp who was once wouldn't even acknowledge being with Jesus, is now preaching the gospel. Even though people are saying, you kept doing it, I'm going to kill you. I mean, where does that come from? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit flood lights Christ and we're just filled with love for him and others and we, we, we just, that, that fear is gone and we just share the gospel. And also I think it just reveals some of God's purpose in persecution. And that is that the love of Jesus, abide in my love, he says, his love is just so powerfully demonstrated in persecution, in the way Christians face persecution. It's a powerful picture of Jesus' love. At the end of that Sermon on the Mount, you know, the end of that uh, section, chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus says, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Love other people. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you'll then just be like your father in heaven who loves people even when they don't love him. It's just a powerful demonstration of God's love. I just, you know, I'm just about to close, but I just, I just think, I just had a sense in preparing this message that maybe there's some people just sitting here today and and when you think about sharing that love, sharing the gospel with your friends who don't know him, you're just paralyzed by fear. You just you've been you've been hired in the light, and you just you're just deeply afraid. You're afraid. I just want to specifically address you because I think the Lord will want to speak to you, and I think the Lord really desires to help you overcome that fear. He wants by his spirit to spark in you just a love for Christ that drives out that fear. So if that's you, just let me encourage you after service. We don't embarrass you. I'd love to pray with you. Um, some life group leaders will be up the front. Uh, just come down the front. We'd love to pray with you and ask God to help you in that. But um, just in summary and closing, we find strength to face persecution in knowledge that those who open Christ will never be put to shame. And in the work of the Spirit, filling our hearts with the love of Christ. So though we, we live in a different world from Reber and Roy, where people face death for their faith, Jesus promises us, he promises us that persecution will come. But I think God has shown us through John this morning that the cause of persecution is this cosmic battle 
between the light and darkness, the light that now exists inside of you. As followers of persecuted Messiah, we're called to follow into a world where, where, where there's persecution, where we will face persecution. But finally, as I just said, and I just want to say once more, we can find strength to face it because of the power of the Spirit in us. Why don't you join with me in praying that God would help us prepare for when that persecution comes. Lord, I, I just want to thank you this morning that you're a God who loves to manifest your name. That you would choose us, choose to manifest your name in and through us. Lord, you're a gracious God. Lord, thank you for the many examples around the world of where people have faithfully stood before the hatred of the world and persecution, boldly proclaiming your gospel. Lord, despite the fact that we live in a different place in a different time, Lord, Lord, we just ask you, Lord, we ask you that you would help us, Lord. Lord, so often we're afraid of sharing our faith with others. Lord, so often we're afraid of boldly shining your light in this world, Lord. But we ask that you would embolden us by your Spirit, Lord. Fill our hearts with such a love for Christ that we just might be overwhelmed. We might forget our fears and failures and we might share the love that we have from you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.